Reading from Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord this morning from the English Standard Version. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. We talked a little bit about that last week. We're kind of getting into an idea here, and we'll catch up with that. Though this heir is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, I've read this morning the the text as it is translated here in the ESV, using specifically the word son. On previous Sundays, I've kind of used a more inclusive term, the term children here. But it is important that we understand in the ancient world, the role of sonship was exceedingly important. That son was to be heir of everything that the father had. And then, you know, after he was dealt with, the other children would be dealt with themselves. Now, we can talk about the difference between a son and a daughter But we also have to talk about the difference between the firstborn son and the other sons that were to follow. Because some of those sons would have thought maybe they were getting the short end of the stick, you know. That uh, that firstborn son not only received the greater abundance of the father's wealth, there were responsibilities placed upon that son in caring for the family and making sure things were held together. And so that responsibility was exceedingly important. All of this taking place within the context of time. When you think of time, what do you think of? Just being late for an appointment? Procrastination? What do you think of? I mentioned in the first service that uh, there's been a study conducted. And that if you would give yourself to studying, to resourcing yourself one hour a day for the next five years on literally any topic you would choose, if you really worked at the task, you would become literally an expert in that field of study. I'm thinking about taking up nuclear physics myself, but I don't know what you might want to get into. But, but, The experts say that were you to do this, you would perhaps have a greater awareness and understanding of that field of study than 97% of the rest of the people on the earth. You would have a great sense of control with that information you had reaped. One hour a day, five days a week for the next five years. There you go. There's your your program of study. Self-education, self-learning. Choose it. Something we all have. Something we all have the same amount of, don't we? It's what we do with it that makes the difference. 
and how we live. And the exciting thing is that it was into this context of time that God came to bring about redemption for us. For you see, it is in the essence of Christian faith itself that God, the Creator, has come to this world, that the Eternal has stepped into time, that the God who stands beyond time has chosen to enter His own creation. But He does so with a purpose. With a purpose to bring about redemption. And we're going to talk about why that became so crucial. But it all takes place within this aspect of time. We all understand, or do we? One of the great preachers of the early 20th century was a man by the name of G. Campbell Morgan. And uh, G. Campbell Morgan had a remarkable ministry, and in her biographical remarks concerning her father, His daughter, Jill, wrote that early in Campbell Morgan's ministry, he learned the difference between 15 minutes and a quarter of an hour. Do you get the difference? It's easy to just kind of throw away the fact that I've only got 15 minutes, can't do much with that. But if I grab the idea that I have a quarter of an hour with which to work, maybe I can get something done. And G. Campbell Morgan found that to be so in his ministry and the volumes of sermons that he left behind because he had learned that difference that time made for him within the ministry. And so God stepping into time, God stepping into history, made all of the difference in the world for all of us. For you see, the story of God's good creation also contains the story of the fall. You go back to Genesis chapter 3, you can read all about that, what it says about that ill choice made by Eve and followed by Adam that separated them from the goodness and grace of God. I've been trying to think about the fall and what that really means to us in the 21st century. Far more enlightened people, aren't we? But I've come up with this thought, that the fall really represents the rejection of humanity The rejection to live within the constraints of God's Word. Now, for Eve and for Adam, it was not eating the fruit of the tree that was at the center of the garden, the tree of life. But for us, it begins to take on even broader proportions because it has to do with what we do with the teachings of Jesus and his call that we come unto him and find rest, that we give ourselves to him, pick up our cross daily and follow him. And so that whole idea of living in obedience to God's word is the means by which 
we overcome the problems created by the fall itself. Not that we do it, but that God brings that restoration power in obedience to his word. So the story of God's good creation and the story of the fall is the story of that desire for us to take on self-autonomy, you know. That the desire to do it my way, by my means, by my good works. And so this whole story that Paul is telling us in the book of Galatians has to do with my willingness to give up my efforts to find God on my own terms. Now, there is something about self-discovery that is very important. Self-discovery is, is kind of mandatory in many fields because nobody can really give you an experience. But you have to find out some of that stuff by yourself. You know, that whole idea of a, of a helicopter parent, as they're called in this day and age, where, where that parent just hovers over the child and wants to keep the child from perhaps hurting themselves. Or maybe he wants to keep the child from making blunders and really learning how to do the work that needs to be done. And so we have children who are stunted in their ability to achieve because helicopter parents have been there to do it for them or to make the way easier. Sometimes, you know, you just got to fall down and skin your knee. But when it comes to grace, God is not just making it easy for, easier for us to know him. It's the only way that we can know him. And so when we give ourselves to God graciously, God is doing for us that which we could never, ever do for ourselves. And that becomes critical if we're going to develop that spiritual life that God has for us in the midst of the time he has given us to live. And so the story of a good creation, the story of a fall, is the story of human life and our issues of finding out our way to achieve the ends of our desired life by our own means. You know, there comes that time in <clears throat> every young person, you know. Jerry, you've been teaching this, I'm certain. That uh, there's nothing more important than being able to get out from under the thumb of mom and dad, huh? <laughs> oh, when I get to college. Oh, when I get my own job. When I'm able to do it myself, you know. <laughs> You ever say that? You want to do it yourself? We have to learn something completely different when it comes to finding God's saving grace. Because it's not about self-discovery. Well, it is, isn't it? <laughs> it's discovering we can't do it ourselves. I can't get to God on my own terms. I come by the path he has laid out for me to 
walk. And so do you. And we walk together and we find it together in him. And that grace becomes then sufficient to every need that we would ever have. So in in Genesis 3, we have the whole idea of Adam and Eve and their failure to recognize God's word as the significant control upon their lives. In Galatians 4, we find humanity now in the same plight. But Paul tells us here that we've not only been excluded from the garden, that we've been enslaved to what he calls these elementary principles of the world, to these forces of human life itself that cave in upon us. And show us that our efforts only lead to despair. Only lead to the back-breaking understanding that we just can't get to God by our own doings. So a good creation is rectified by a God who continues to act in spite of the fall. There's been humanity wanting to go its own way, wanting to do its own thing, wanting to have life on its terms. But God keeps acting. And Paul says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. To bring to them that fullness that only God could give to his people. And it is what God has done in Christ that becomes the most remarkable thing for all of us. Now, there were times in my high school years. I sure wish I would have had a helicopter parent there to do some of those math problems for me that uh, I struggled with. I didn't do the best in geometry, I must admit. I didn't do the best in some of those math classes. And I tried to convince myself, you know, well, I'm a a humanities person. I kind of like the literature stuff far better than the math and science. But regardless, I needed help. And I didn't always know how to find it. In the avenue of grace within the world, God has given to us the church in which we are planted to bloom as his children. And the good news is, is that we have one another to find that kind of insight together that we need as we follow Jesus in a broken world. And so God's continuous activity within the world is there to help us find wholeness that we can't always find by ourselves, that God doesn't intend for us to find by ourselves. And so what does the church become at that point? The church becomes more than just a social station that we need because we got some of the people who attend there, and maybe they like us, and 
you know, we have lunch together or something. We go to a movie night on a Wednesday night and have a big time. You're going to be there, aren't you? I'm going to be there. You're going to have some fun. You're going to be there, Chuck? I'll be Look for me, okay? Have a good time. God wants the church to be that means of our support within the world, where together we grow and become all that He has created us to be. I don't think we look at the church like that enough. That it is more than just an institution for, you know, finding a place of service within the world. It's a place where we can find the very sustenance of our life as God is working through our brothers and sisters in Christ to make a difference in all that we do. It is the community of the redeemed where God has chosen to meet us and to make a difference in our lives. A community of people who've learned not only to love one another, but to love one another to the extent that Jesus said, as John recorded it, greater love hath no man than this. Then he lay down his life for his friends. And then Jesus goes on and says, and you are my friends. We learn that from the one we follow. Now, you can tell that I've been in the church a long time and I've never had to live to that principle completely. I've not had to give my life for anybody physically. But is there a part of me, is there a part of you, is there a part of us that would say we understand the church at that level? That the people we have given ourselves to in commitment to a local congregation demands the real essence of who I am. Can I live that way within the church? I think that's a part of God's ongoing action. That the the fall came, it happened, but God continues to act. And the story of creation gone bad is now reflected in the hope of the gospel that liberates us from the slaves we have been within the world. Now listen, you go to work tomorrow. You see some of your co-workers there who've never known what it is to understand the grace of God in their life. And you try to begin by telling them how sorry you are for them because they are enslaved to the principles of this world. And they'll look at you and scratch their head and say, you must be crazy. I'm not enslaved to anything. And you see, I think that becomes the power of a life that has become so, dare I say, secularized that we don't even see the trap 
in which we live. We don't even understand how deceitful the trap can be when placed in light of the things of God. We live in a vicious world, you know that. You don't have to watch much news or listen to much news or read much news until you realize how desperate our world is. The crimes against humanity. The property crimes for self-gain. The deceit, the deception, the cruelty that is there. But bless God, we're not trapped in that world. (laughs) Paul says that apart from Jesus Christ, we are enslaved to the principles and powers of this world. That apart from Jesus Christ, we don't know what it means to have the freedom of sons, the freedom of sonship, the freedom of being the children of God within this world. And so it is our task. It is our task within the church to become reflective to the whole world of what it means to be the liberated children of God, serving God as only free, liberated people can do it. Think of what you know about the book of Exodus with the children of Israel there enslaved to the oppressive government of the Pharaoh of Egypt. They they had no freedom to serve God. They're crying out for deliverance. Oh God, set us free from this curse. They don't know the joy of that liberation until the exodus comes. And it is only then that they know freedom. And, of course, we know that there were even problems with that freedom. But there's something in this text that holds it together for the good. And it is spoken of in the terms that are similar to what God has done to bring about the redemption of the world. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Look what he says in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You don't have to pretend you're God's child. God's Spirit, the Spirit of the Son, has been given to us in our hearts, crying out that God is our Father, which implies, of course, That we are God's children. It's not a game of make-believe. It's not a game of pretending this is what we ought to be. It's what we are. It's who we are. In the economy of God's grace. And so this text that began in Genesis 3 that is continued throughout the Old Testament and made its way now to Galatians chapter 4, is not merely the story of the problems of a fallen world, but the power of God's grace through Jesus Christ to rectify that fallenness 
and to make us whole. And to restore us to what it means to be his children. Free from the oppressive restraints of a secular world that could care less. So, as we conclude, let me ask you to do something great this week. When Governor Dick Lamb, governor of the uh, state of Colorado for two terms, gave his final State of the State address, he uh, told a story about Abraham Lincoln, that on Wednesday nights, Mr. Lincoln and one of his aides would walk down to a small Methodist meeting house near the White House, and the pastor would leave the door to his office ajar, and the president and his aide would slip in, and the door to the sanctuary would be ajar from the office. And the president and his aide could be there to participate in the service without making a to-do with the entire congregation. They would do that week after week. And as Governor Lamb told that story, he talked about them walking back to the White House. Can you imagine that today, huh? <laughs> Here's the president and his aide just walking back to the White House. It was a January evening and a light snow was falling. And the aide said to President Lincoln, Mr. Lincoln, what would you think of the sermon tonight? And Lincoln responded by saying, he did pretty good. But he didn't ask me to do anything great. Remarkable words. So I want to ask you to do something great. And greatness, of course, you know, is a relative kind of term. So uh, we'll start maybe relatively easy. But if you are one of those who know what it means to be redeemed and set free from the restraints and constraints of this world, I want to ask you this week to live intentionally as the children of God. Not just saying, well, that's who I am, this is how I live. No, no, no. Live intentionally. So that when you face a decision in your life, when a need comes up, you're going to tackle that need as a child of God. Not merely, you know, saying in your mind, WWJD, you know, what would Jesus do? No, no. Moving beyond that just a little bit. And asking yourself, as a child of God, in this context... What must I do to reflect God's grace in my life? To allow God's Spirit to be at work in me. How do I bring glory to God in this situation with my life? And as you live intentionally as the children of God this week, I think God will show you what that freedom he intended all of us to have 
is really worth in the midst of the lives that we live. Living intentionally as the children of God. I think that's what Paul wants us to see from this great text as God was inspiring him to help the Galatians be free from the constraints of the law that could not save them, but could only hold them back. Will you take the risk? Will you dare to live intentionally as God's children? It will make a difference in all that you do.